Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Charting Queer Health, a podcast at the intersection of queer culture, healthcare, and research. On behalf of Howard Brown Health in Chicago, as always, I'm your host, Matt Lesky. I identify as a cis white gay man. I'm a Chicago resident. But most importantly, I have the incredible opportunity to sit down with various experts from across our organization and across our community to learn from their expertise, amplify their stories and voices, and advance the conversation surrounding queer healthcare. Joining us today is uh, Dr. Anu Hazra. Uh, Anu, welcome back. Uh, this is now, I think, your third time. So, uh, today's episode, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, STIs and uh, PEP and PrEP with doxycycline. And I had to run those words past you before we started recording to make sure I was saying them right. Uh, and then I know what we're talking about. So, um, I've seen you on Twitter recently kind of um, discussing. PEP and PrEP for STIs. Now, uh, if you've been listening to the show, we know that um, PEP and PrEP is usually uh, in, you know, the common consciousness thought about in regards to um, HIV. So I don't think I wasn't aware up until recently that you can use the kind of same methodology for STIs. So run me through. Um, yeah how that all works. Of course, of course. So um, the idea of prophylaxis is actually pretty common in the world of infectious diseases. If you've ever traveled to a malaria endemic country, you might have taken malaria prophylaxis. All prophylaxis means is you're taking a medication to prevent a certain type of infection from happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so it can be a pre-exposure prophylaxis, meaning you're taking the medicine before exposure, or a post-exposure prophylaxis, meaning you're taking some sort of medicine or intervention after exposure. Again, the, the, the primary goal of that is to prevent an infection from from taking place. So uh, we think about a uh, right so in common consciousness when we think about PEP and PrEP as those terminologies, we think of it really around HIV. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are a lot of other infections that we think about prophylaxis for. We prophylax for Lyme, we prophylax for rabies, we prophylax for a lot of other types of infections uh, in ways to again reduce uh, potential transmission and morbidity on, on that patient. Um, for a long time, uh, people have been talking about, well, you know, we've found effective means of prophylaxing against HIV, both before exposure and after exposure. Um, so what about sort of STIs? Um, and so the, um, the, the, first amount of data that we've been getting, you know, has been over the past decade or so looking at giving a certain type of antibiotic to see if that would reduce um, someone's ability of, of, of essentially being diagnosed with an STI or sexually mm -hmm. transmitted infection. Uh, and doxycycline is an antibiotic that has been the most studied uh, for this purpose. Okay, so doxycycline is an antibiotic. Um, w w if they're not using it for STIs, what would doxycycline be given for? Just yeah. a general infection of any kind? Yeah, uh, doxycycline is typically used for a lot of different types of infections. Mm -hmm. It's often dubbed like, in infectious disease physicians' favorite antibiotic because it covers so many different types of things. Um, doxycycline specifically can be used for prophylaxis for malaria and can be used for prophylaxis against like scrub typhus and other types of infections. Gotcha. Um, and can also be used for prophylaxis against Lyme disease. Um, doxycycline is uh, an antibiotic in the class of tetracyclines. Um, if anyone has suffered from acne, um, you know you've taken minocycline um, uh, potentially as part of your acne regimen. Uh, and that's again uh, a tetracycline antibiotic that's a cousin to doxycycline. Uh, that's used uh, pretty widespread uh, in the prevention of certain bacteria that can cause acne from becoming worse. Interesting. Yeah, I think that name rings a bell. I think I was probably on that for a little bit before I eventually just switched to Accutane. But okay, so it's not, doxycycline is not a drug that was invented just for STIs. It was not, it's a blanket. Yeah, it's okay. been around for a long time and it's been used, it's, it's used 
currently as the primary treatment for, um, we think about STIs as the primary treatment for chlamydia infections okay. um, and can be used as an alternative treatment for syphilis. Okay, so I, yeah, I asked that clarification uh, because there's always that level of, of stigma of like I'm taking this drug that was meant for, you know, this kind of uh, infection, but if it's, I, I, at least it helps me kind of comprehend it as, you know, if it's meant for a broad variety of things and it just so happens to be effective for this, you know, pretty easy. Everybody should have access to it. So um, I just asked for that clarification because of that. But speaking broadly, um, STIs, uh, first off, when I started, uh, had sex education growing up, it was STDs mm -hmm. and now it's STIs. Quickly, what is the difference and why the change? Yeah, it's a way to destigmatize um, the word. Um, you know, these are not diseases. You don't live with syphilis forever. You don't live with gonorrhea forever. These are infections, just mm -hmm. like, you know, you can get a cold in your nose, your dick can get a cold. Like it's like this, like thinking about these yeah. in, in this type of way. Um, and that's why you want to get screened regularly because you want to make sure you don't have an infection. And then you take an antibiotic if you do have an infection and refrain from potentially spreading that infection to other people until you're fully treated. Um, and so a lot of that, a lot of this, the push behind changing this terminology has been trying to go away from a disease centered approach and being like, okay, this is just an infection and this is how we can treat it. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and a lot of my sex ed growing up was also very um, uh, fear tactics, kind of. Uh, there's that scene in Mean Girls uh, yeah, where they get chlamydia and die. And die. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of interested on the um, stigma aspect of this as well. So that's why I ask why the change. Um, are STIs as uh, endemic as some people would lead you to believe? Is it like in terms of uh, the last 50 years, our STI levels higher, lower? Where, yeah, where do we we're that? Um, entering now our seventh year of the highest rates of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis we've oh, seen wow. in this country. So we're definitely in an epidemic of, of STIs currently. I think what that tells you is a few different things. I, I think about sort of um, this epidemic of STIs in two, like what it's causing in two ways. There's like structural factors and individual mm -hmm. level factors, and they all sort of interplay together. Um, I think um, the stigma around STIs itself has been, you know, not really ameliorated. Um, mm -hmm. It still almost feels stigmatizing to get STI screening done. It's not really been normalized to even talk about STIs or some of the folks who've gotten STIs. And I think there's also a structural level um, uh, issues, particularly around funding uh, for sexual health work uh, and just public health that has been really decimated uh, and uh, over the past several years. And we've seen what that's done in, in the relation to COVID that yeah. we see this really dilapidated infrastructure for public health that's trying to respond to a global pandemic and really can't. This is what we have to work with in our sexual health realms. And so we really need to reinvest back into these public health uh, infrastructure to help reduce sort of these rising rates of STIs. Interesting. Because uh, I've seen a lot of sensationalist uh, headlines, maybe they're sensationalist, sensationalist, I don't know, um, about how this current generation or, you know, young people are having the, the least sex or having uh, the least children or fewest children, um, you know, in comparison to other generations at this point, they're, uh, you know, at this age is how does, how do you marry those headlines with, you know, we're also at record high for STIs. Yeah. Yeah. Is it because when people think STIs, people usually think young people, but is, I mean, it, 
there's no yeah. discrimination based on age. Yeah, it's still youngest people, young people. So ages um, 18 to 24 still comprise disproportionately of new infections of STIs for all three. Mm-hmm. Um, and gay, bisexual, men, men also are disproportionately impacted uh, by the STI epidemics themselves. Um, okay. I don't know if I buy that people are having less sex now. I think what we're seeing is maybe a decline in condom use globally, um, not just in you know queer populations, but across the board. And I think a lot of that has to do with just how people have sex. And I, I, you know, I, I think it's important to understand that condoms are one way to protect you from STIs, and there's other forms of ways to protect you from STIs itself. So condoms are not the end-all, be-all mm-hmm. of STI prevention, and we got to think about uh, ways of messaging beyond condoms because obviously just condom messaging is not working, right? right. Uh, that we're still seeing rising rates of STIs as condom use is declining. So we got to give people other tools and other options of protecting themselves. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, it's not... Those are a little sensationalist then, I would say, that uh, we're having less sex. Or maybe maybe having fewer children, but I think that's just more well, of an economic like, thing. People can't even like, afford a house, so have right. a child. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. So they're still having sex, just not uh, in, in the goal of having a child. Um, so what, um, what STIs are treatable with doxycycline or prophylaxis are all of them is it a specific kind of infection what does that look like yeah yeah so uh like i said um doxycycline is the primary treatment for chlamydia infections and can be an alternative treatment for syphilis okay. um majority of gonorrhea in this country and globally is already resistant to tetracycline antibiotics so mm. doxycycline is not really protective against um against um gonorrhea um the biggest study that's been done to date uh was actually in paris um was looking at uh you know the same trial uh that was giving us on-demand prep or the two plus one plus one option for PrEP actually initiated doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis into that protocol. And so it was all it was all people who are HIV negative who are in a PrEP trial, and they were given a dose of 200 milligrams of doxycycline, which is two tablets of doxycycline, you know, 24 hours, but no more than 72 hours um, after some sort of unprotected sexual intercourse. Mm-hmm. And so what they were looking at is... Um, baseline rates of STIs for folks coming into the study, um, and then uh, really uh, thinking about, um, you know, what was the time to the first STI in the arm that was getting antibiotic. And what they saw was around 73% reduction uh, in, in syphilis, the first syphilis infection after starting doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis, and about 70% reduction in chlamydia infections um, in, in, in the treatment arm, or the arm that was receiving doxycycline prophylaxis. There was no change in gonorrhea infections, but we didn't expect that to be the case, yeah. uh, because gonorrhea is pretty resistant to to, de- uh, to, uh, to tetracyclines. And so those were the, the, uh, the, the biggest thing. And what they saw was there was no difference in sexual activity. Uh, they were having you know, both groups, people who were not taking the drug and people who were taking the drug, um, uh, were having the same number of sexual partners, uh, same amount of condomless sex, et cetera. So they were pretty much equivalent in, in that regard. Um, and this was, the, again, a, a large-ish study, about 250 individuals, mm-hmm. MSM, um, um, uh, or medical sex with men, uh, in a PrEP trial that we saw this happen. Okay, so there was there's a lot of uh, factors there that I want to clarify. So they um, it was 250 individuals, and they saw a 70% reduction in uh, the time it took to get develop, their first STI to catch their first STI. Yeah. So uh, they were able to have sex longer without an STI contacting. Okay, okay, that that clarifies. And so they were. You said they were given two tablets when every day yeah. or yeah so okay. they were given um so the way the protocol worked in that study is they were given two tablets ideally within 24 hours after uh, they were taking two tablets so they already had a 
you know, a, a bottle of doxycycline. Mm-hmm. They, were to, they were instructed to take two tablets, um, at least within, ideally within 24 hours after in unprotected sex, gotcha. but no more than 72 hours after. Okay, so it was, it was up to them to to take to the take tablets yeah. after. Okay, yes. so. And that's what we mean by prophylaxis is as a, like a case by case basis. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, or, yeah. Know, Almost thinking needed. about it like a plan B, you yeah. know, uh, a way, uh, which is a prophylaxis against pregnancy. Uh, but yeah, thinking about it the same way. That helps clarify actually, because, uh, prophylaxis is kind of a scary word, not scary, but like a, a big word, hard Floated, to comprehend. Yeah, but when yeah. you think of like plan B is prophylaxis, that makes perfect sense. And that's yeah. plan B is something that the general public is very well acquainted with. Yeah. So there's, you know, really not very much difference. Um, you also touched on the two plus one plus one. Um, I don't think that's something that we've actually talked about uh, oh, is yeah. prep on demand. So can you run us through yeah, what that yeah, looks like? Yeah, So, um, you know, the, uh, the the first studies that looked at prep was taking a prep, which was uh, tenofovir and emphrocytabine, and, and it, uh, formerly known as Truvada, um, every single day mm-hmm. as, a, as a daily drug, right? Um, we know that adherence to a daily drug is not great. Um, and a lot of times folks just are not able to adhere um, to 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 daily dosing. Uh, and so the IPRK trial, which was the same group in, in, in France, was looking at, well, you know, we have some understanding of how, you know, the pharmacokinetics of this drug. Um, and what if we do like a, 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 an on-demand type of dosing uh, that folks can take when they know they're going to have sex or maybe go to a sex party or a bathhouse, et cetera, when they know they may be um, having unprotected sex or be at, at risk for, for HIV through sexual transmission. And so the way that it's dosed is um, it's only been studied in MSM and trans women. So that's the one caveat and it's Mm. only been studied in tdf fdc so which is formerly known as truvada or generic truvada it has not been studied in discovy although the data from discovy looks promising it has Mm. not been published so it's not technically it's technically a different drug so we can't loop that in exactly so this is is an msm and trans women who have sex with men Mm -hmm. uh, and only looking at truvada or generic truvada and the way this works is you take two tablets of truvada or generic truvada at least uh, two hours, no, uh, two to 24 hours before you have sex. Okay. Okay. You would probably want to have a little bit more lead time. The idea is you're giving yourself a loading dose. You're trying to increase the level of Truvada you have in your system uh, to be protective. Um, And then you take one dose 24 hours after that and Mm -hmm. another another dose 48 48 hours hours. after that. Okay. And so I always call it two plus one plus one because that just makes me always memorize the dosing structure of it. Yes, that makes sense. So um, to, to kind of visualize it over a timeline, let's say it's the weekend and I know I'm going to a sex party on a Friday night, um, hypothetically. Uh, so Friday morning, I would take one. Friday evening... Uh, so you would take, yeah. So if you, you take, take the two at the same time, at the same time. So okay. Exactly. So if, if you're, if you know, you're going to Steamworks or you're going right. to go uh, to a party, um, on Friday evening, you would want to take it no shorter than two hours before you're going to have sex. Okay. Uh, ideally a little bit longer lead time is, is important. Um, but again, two to 24 hours before you're planning to have sex, you so, take two tablets at once. And then on Saturday, you take another mm-hmm. tablet. And then on Sunday, Sunday you take, take the final one. tablet. Okay. That, that clarifies it. So yeah, I think that it just puts it in a, a timeline that I can understand. Yeah. So, and yeah, the CDC guidelines for prep, which were updated in December, 2021 has this all spelled out as well. So oh, this okay. is now a CDC approved way of taking prep. So this is something that people in Europe have been doing for a long, longish time. Um, in the United States, we're always a little bit more hesitant mm-hmm. or reluctant of bending some rules gotcha. uh, or th- accepting sometimes new data. Uh, but this is sort of in the CDC guidelines now. So this is an approved way of thinking about taking PrEP, particularly for folks who are maybe not having sex as frequently yeah. or have trouble with remembering to take a daily tablet. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that on, on online for sure. People will like 
post a picture like them going to pick up their prep bottle and like I don't know why I have this I don't ever have sex yeah uh, but it's uh, encouraging to hear that you can kind of use it on demand and kind of yeah um, I interesting that you use the words bend the rules a little bit because yeah when I first heard about prep it was like every day reliably or you know big danger coming your way but I guess it's good to know that yeah. you can kind of yeah, Flex and it's funny because oh, so the tweet I made was actually about Fire Island. Yeah, uh, great movie. Recommend it's on Hulu. Um, uh, and Joel Kim Booster's character essentially says that he pretends to be a nurse when he's meeting this guy who's a physician, and he's like, "Yeah, I just um, uh, take doxy prophylactically." So he made like a joke about that. I'm like, "Okay, so it's like in the public consciousness, people right. know." And they they talk about sort of missing doses of of of, of prep as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. I think. Um, Bo and Yang and Matt Rogers talk about it in their La Culturistas podcast too about this, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it is something that's kind of um, gaining steam societally. That that was my next question is, uh, and this also applies to not just MSM, but like uh, STI prophylaxis in general, is what's the kind of um, social um, reaction to it? Because uh, we know like sex education and, and normalizing healthy sexual behavior has always kind of had some pushback. Yeah. Is this uh, a similar route where people are like, this will only enable people to have yeah. you know, dangerous sex and, and things like that? Like, yeah. I mean, I think it, um, the reactions are, are, are really echoing people's reactions to prep back in like in the early 2010s, um, how people were like, well, why don't people just wear a condom or just not have sex and, and whatnot? And we know that that messaging is not always helpful yeah. and that you really need to be able to meet patients where they're at and be able to give them tools that they can use to protect themselves. Um, this does not take the place of condoms by any means. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if someone's not going to use a condom, they're not going to use a condom. So it's like you can message it until the cows come home. Uh, but un- unless, you know, you have other forms of, of, of intervention, it's important. I will say, you know, a lot of the worry comes from, well, now people are just going to be taking antibiotics willy-nilly and we're going to see more potential resistance and whatnot. And that is definitely a concern. I'm an infectious disease physician. I don't like giving antibiotics for no indication at all. I will say this, though, um, you know, in this type of post-exposure prophylaxis type of ways, I'm thinking of like a morning-after pill, um, you're not being exposed to a daily dose of antibiotics every day. And again, we've used doxycycline for post-exposure prophylaxis for a lot of other infections. We know, you know... Large swaths of youth take minocycline on a regular, on a daily basis uh, for acne prevention. Um, we do see some changes to their flora or the normal skin bacteria that they mm-hmm. have, uh, but nothing that is worrisome or would make us stop utilizing that antibiotic for that purpose. And so I completely understand. And now there are larger studies across the country and across the world looking specifically to answer that question. So what is the impact of doxycycline prophylaxis on our gut microbiome? What is the impact on our skin flora? What's the impact? on potential resistance of other organisms. And so we're going to hopefully have that information. My biggest concern is that we can't always wait five years until that randomized control trial comes out while we're in the midst of one of the largest STI epidemics since, you know, the early 90s, right? And what worries me and what I I think mentioned in that tweet was um, that we made a lot of mistakes with our rollout for HIV prep. Uh, we made it hard to access, um, and therefore the people who got access the first to PrEP were really not the ones that were most at risk for HIV. Mm-hmm. While we know that gay and bisexual and excessive men are at higher risk for HIV, we know that risk is very much stratified based on racial and, and, and ethnicity fault lines yeah. in general. And so we made a lot of missteps in our PrEP implementation where the majority of new PrEP prescriptions for 
the majority of time was all going to white MSMs in really low HIV incidence areas of this country uh, and really ignoring uh, black and brown uh, queer folks who are at much higher risk for HIV based on their sexual networks mm -hmm. um, um, in general. And so my biggest worry is this is an intervention that is new, uh, that is effective, and we're going to get more data on how effective it is. Uh, but I think it's important for us to be able to be you know, mindful of how to create some equity and how we sort of implement this. And we know uh, black and brown folks are still the most impacted uh, by STIs and morbidity associated with STIs. And so we want to make sure that those folks are also given a seat at the table of understanding what this intervention is and having access to it. Yeah. You, you mentioned a lot of stuff there. Um, one of the first things I wrote down as you were talking was the concept of harm reduction, which we're all well acquainted with because we've had a whole podcast episode on it. So if you haven't, if you haven't listened, go back and listen to that one. But um, this is just another form of harm reduction of enabling people to live the lives that they're going to lead uh, with the fewest negative consequences. Correct. Um, because like you said, we've shown that just preaching... Uh, you know, sex with a condom or uh, as my case was growing up, abstinence only right. uh, just doesn't work. So uh, it, it's, it's very clear that like we, we do have to take the steps necessary to allow people to live healthy lives. I'm glad you touched on the antibiotic resistance because that was something uh, I had written down to, to ask about because that's something that keeps kind of coming up as medic medication evolves. And I, there was a TED talk podcast that I listened to about it uh, and it's a huge concern, but I guess that point that you made that the acne antibiotic, I think I was on it for like four years. Yeah. Uh, just every day, uh, and it wasn't a concern. And, and so if somebody can do that, you know, they can take it for a few days as prophylaxis and it shouldn't really be a concern. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I think, uh, it's hard to say like, it will definitely not be concerned just yet. And we're going to have that data soon and we're going to yeah. have that information soon. And in fact, UCSF and university of Washington is actually going to be able to present their data on doxycycline prophylaxis amongst their, uh, their sexual health clinics. Uh, I think that's going to be presented at AIDS 2022, uh, which is going to be the end of July. So we're going to have even more information that will hopefully impact the practice uh, or, or of this practice itself. I will say what was interesting is they've been serving a lot of different clinics about this. And um, uh, there was like a large um, survey off of actually a grinder um, uh, network that was mm -hmm. looking at and seeing that actually black and brown queer folks were more accepting of this as a prophylaxis than to HIV prophylaxis. And that this was something that they were more okay with uh, than HIV prophylaxis, and I, which is interesting yeah. uh, in general. And then another study out of Seattle showed that already 10% of folks were already utilizing this intervention. So it's like, it's already happening, right? And mm. so we are already falling behind of how to, okay, how do we get this intervention to people who really need it um, and versus not? Right. Uh we're recording these episodes concurrently, but at this point, the monkeypox episode will be out. And we kind of talked about this like really important window of time where, uh, you know, we have to be on top of it uh, to prevent this from from growing further. And it, obviously, we are already probably miss that with STIs and it's always going to be an ongoing thing to try yeah. to treat. But it does strike me that like there's this, you know, ongoing research coming out and we're, you know, uh, doxycycline is still kind of new in regards to treating this, so we have to be proactive in rolling it out and informing people what uh, you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's taking us are. it's taking us twelve years to really start to really start to close the gap between the inequities we've seen with HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis right. in terms of who has been getting it, who really needs it in this country. 12 years, right? Yeah. So I don't want us to wait 12 years uh, for us to, you know, finally get a potentially good intervention uh, against STIs to, again, folks that need it more than potentially the worried well or, or, or whatnot. Right. That yeah. makes sense. Um, I, 
this is kind of backtracking to more of the medical stuff that we talked about earlier. Uh, we said that gonorrhea is pretty much resistant to tetracyclines across the board, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when did that happen? How quickly did it happen? Yeah. And what is different about gonorrhea than uh, syphilis and chlamydia that yeah. they haven't changed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So gonorrhea is probably what keeps a lot of us in sexual health up at night, uh, like multi-drug resistant gonorrhea. I think this is something that's really concerning. So gonorrhea as a bacteria just has the ability to create more resistance mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. And so we've seen um, these case rates, you might have seen like super resistant gonorrhea yeah. or whatnot in, in, in the news. And these are um, gonococcal infections that are resistant to majority of the antibiotics we have available. And again, this is indicative of a larger issue of antibiotic overuse or misuse across the globe that is driving antimicrobial resistance, not just in gonorrhea, but really in other pathogens as well. Um, so gonorrhea has the ability to uh, become resistant to a lot of the antibiotics we have. And again, the threat of multidrug resistant gonorrhea is actually on uh, the one of the, the biggest targets for the CDC uh, to, to, to think of. And, and if we think about our testing algorithm for particularly oral gonorrhea. And if you, yeah, if you guys are aware, you know, if you've had oral gonorrhea, the CDC actually recommends a test of cure uh, because all the multi-drug resistant gonorrhea cases have actually been oral gonorrhea. Uh, and so the CDC really wants to make sure people are fully cured of gonorrhea before, uh, uh, before uh, being concerned, or then they would be concerned for potential resistance. Interestingly, um, chlamydia, while there are case rates of treatment failures for chlamydia, we don't really have a great mechanism of how chlamydia can become resistant to antibiotics. And then syphilis just does not have the ability, like the mechanism to become resistant, which is why we treat syphilis the same way we've been treating syphilis since World War II, uh, which is shots of penicillin. Honestly, it's like the oldest antibiotic in the book and still 100% effective against syphilis itself. Interesting. So yeah, it's just more of a function of the actual genetic makeup of these bacteria. Yeah, the ability of the bacteria to, and then just gone Maria has just misbehaves more and is able to become uh, more resistant faster. Interesting. Okay. So yeah. And I, I love that point of like, we've treated syphilis the same way forever. Yeah. Uh, literally the same way. That's, that's so interesting. Um, switching back to what we were talking about of more of the, the social aspects of this. Um, how does somebody ask for this? Uh, because it can strike me that like, obviously Howard Bond's really affirming. And if I were to, to go to my, um, uh, general practitioner, I could just ask for it. I'm, and I'm sure we'd evaluate, you know, my yeah. lifestyle and, and if it yeah. was warranted in that. Um, but I can see somebody in a healthcare setting that's maybe not as affirming, wanting access to this and kind of having to to lobby or to like to make the case or to even educate the provider. Um, yeah, what, I, how yeah. Do you do I, that? I think it's the same way we think about sort of HIV prep, right? For a lot of places, patients have to really like educate their own providers um, about getting on prep and understanding what prep was, and um, uh, or having to go seeking care at sort of clinics that have the knowledge or have the ability to provide that kind of care. Um, I helped create the protocol for doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis at Howard Brown. Um, And so we're looking specifically based on the data that we have so far in MSM and trans women um, and specifically looking um, at folks who have multiple infections, right? So this is not just some, if you're just worried about STIs and you want to take it, that's great. But again, this is not the population, that's not the population that we need to focused on yeah. this type of intervention. Uh, there was a great study in Massachusetts that saw only 0.2% of the Massachusetts population had more than one STI between like a two-year period, mm-hmm. but that 0.2% comprised of over a fourth of all infections in that period of time. So people who have repeat infections yeah. of STIs are 
you know, people who are obviously most disproportionately impact, but also lead to the highest rates of downstream transmission, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're going to create this new intervention, you really want to intervene on on folks who are having potentially multiple STIs. So specifically for the protocol that we have in place here, we're looking to have someone who has more than one syphilis infection in the two-year period. Um, It's probably one of the the major inclusion criteria that we're looking at in in, in, um, implementing doxypep here. So again, if you've never had an STI and you're just worried about STIs, great, get tested, get screened, et cetera. Uh, but this intervention is probably not the best for you uh, because we really want to focus on folks that are disproportionately impacted by STIs and see how that can uh, be preventative in helping stop downstream transmission. That's a great clarifying point because I could see uh, kind of the general MSM public saying, well, you know, this is just another, another barrier of protection. Let me just have a prescription for it just as a preventative thing because SCIs are scary and I don't want that. And and so it's, it's not necessarily for them. It's for people who have demonstrated that they are more likely to have an STI or they've had syphilis twice in, you know, a year or whatever it might be. It's for them and it's not for, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I I don't want to come off like a gatekeeper for like a potential intervention, but I, again, I still want to proceed with some caution, right? This is still relatively new. We're basing this off a study of 250 people. Mm -hmm. You know, if we, if the data from UCSF and and, uh, University of Washington shows that this is effective in a larger swath, we will definitely accommodate and we will um, uh, change our our, our protocol. It's dynamic as we're learning more and more information. But for now, since the small amount of information we have, we really want to focus this intervention where it's going to make the most impact and that's really the population we're looking at yeah um it's interesting what and you kind of touched on this before so we're basing this off a study of 250 people what would you say to other healthcare professionals or um even patients who are worried that that's not you know conclusive enough data to warrant prescribing this uh to a general public um is it just sort of you know, I, I think it's reasonable for healthcare providers to be a little reluctant or reticent about it. I, I think I, I, I totally understand. But the amount of syphilis and chlamydia that I diagnose on a daily basis in my clinic, it's like I can't wait for that data mm. to come in. Like I'm seeing good data here and we need to act. And that's sort of what was the impetus of us creating this sort of protocol uh, in our clinics was like, hey, like that's that's great. And if you have the luxury of waiting for your patients, that's that's fine. But I'm seeing folks losing their hearing from syphilis. I'm seeing folks who are having sort of, you know, um, infertility related to chlamydia infections. Like these are impacting my patients on a real world basis right now. So I wanted to figure out how I can protect them now. Yeah. Apologies for the siren. As I always say, we are recording coming to you live, not live, from (laughs) Chicago. So that kind of comes with the territory. But um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of your duty as as a medical provider. It's like we have a solution to a problem that we're seeing and... Yeah, you and know, it's the it's, clinical it's protocol. Again, it's not cement. It's not. It's not in cement. Yeah. Like we can be dynamic and be able mm-hmm. to change it based on more information that we get. Ideally, you know, there are studies in sub Saharan Africa looking at cisgender women, and I'm hoping that we can develop a clinical protocol for cisgender women by that. The only issue with doxycycline that we didn't talk, talk about is a tragedy, so it can cause. Uh, it's cl- the class of tetracycline that's in. A tratogen means it can cause a birth, de- a med- any medication that can cause a birth defect is uh, called a tratogen. Um, and so tetracycline, which was the older version of doxycycline, was a major tratogen. Doxycycline has been dosed in pregnancy in the past, but we don't have enough data to say it's 100% not a tratogen. So gotcha. it's contraindicated in folks who 
uh, are pregnant. Um, and so that's the one issue that, you know, that the studies are looking more at. So that was part of the risk-benefit discussion we had um, in, in our sort of clinical uh, team meetings about like who do we want to start with? Right. And we have the data in cisgender men and transgender women. So let's start there. Once we get data in folks who have childbearing potential, uh, we can hopefully expand the protocol there as well. That makes sense. So the, the one red flag was with possibly people who could conceive a child and, and that's correct. what we're worried about. Yeah. So obviously in MSM or transgender women, we don't have to... Yeah, but I, I will say with experience, uh, doxycycline is a much safer drug than tetracycline mm-hmm. in pregnancy. We just don't have the data to say that it's 100% safe. And that's yeah. Why, yeah. So as medica- medicine progresses and, and science progresses, is it unrealistic to think that there we would you know, have a version of doxycycline that wouldn't be a... a what was the word for uh, birth complications? Um, uh, that, that wouldn't be associated with birth defects or yeah. whatnot? Um, I mean, potentially, yeah. Or um, just like uh, if you've ever been on Accutane, you have to like prove you're not pregnant like every single time yeah. and, and take like this oath that like you're going to be on two oh, forms of birth control. It's wild, yeah. yeah I had so, yeah. A, a female friend who, I was on Accutane, obviously, as uh, a cis male, I didn't have to worry about it, but every pill pack, uh, the like it's the like plastic gets wrapped in. Like a yeah, no, it's a pregnant woman with a big X through it. So like it's, it's the biggest thing. So um, yeah, so it is, it's not unreasonable to assume that we might be able to achieve a point where doxycycline has no negative repercussions for anybody. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm, I'm hopeful that we can get to a point where we can start dosing doxy in pregnant people. I think, okay. um, yeah, yeah. Interesting. To, to, to wrap this up, what is what does the future of sexual health care look like as regards to um, prophylaxis? Because I know PrEP is kind of just transitioning into an injectable option, which uh, makes more sense. Is uh, Do you ever foresee a, um, uh, a future where uh, doxycycline is kind of analogous to plan B where you could buy it over the counter uh, and it's, it's kind of normalized that yeah. possible and what steps do we need to get there? Yeah. I don't think we would ever bring an antibiotic over the counter, but I, I would hope that it would be sort of an intervention that would be more widespread yeah. with, as we get more data for sure. Um, thinking again as, a, as another tool in our tool belt to protect us from, from, from STIs. Um, there's also a lot of other work in the prevention for, of STIs in terms of vaccine technology, et cetera, uh, that we're looking at to potentially prevent herpes uh, and even gonorrhea. So there's a lot of work being done in this prevention aspect, but we need funding for that, right? And mm. so in general, STIs have often been like this um, really neglected um, field um, that that folks don't really fund as much, um, and it's trying to trying to sort of combat that and realizing that we do need funding to to be able to think of these new sort of innovative ways of preventing STIs in this country. Yeah, and that's always the goal of this podcast is to kind of elevate conversations. I can see why you know in the grand scheme of things, people would just kind of relegate STIs to like, oh, it's a nuisance, you know, it's, right. it's things that people don't particularly enjoy, but that's on them for having sex. So it's not necessarily something yeah. we're going to dump billions of dollars into funding. Yeah. Um, but obviously it's, it's still, um, a public health concern. And, and I'm really quickly, you said you're seeing people losing their hearing from, uh, syphilis. What are some of the more serious, um, not to fear monger, but that's not a side effect I'd ever heard of syphilis. What are, what are, yeah, other... yeah. I mean, um, so 
There are a lot of long uh, downstream complications for any of these STIs. And, and typically we've been thinking of this more in the aspect of fertility in like, you know, people with childbearing potential, but there's a lot of other types of, of issues that arise uh, with untreated STIs. And syphilis primarily, uh, if it invades the central nervous system, can cause hearing loss, vision loss, and even other neurological symptoms. And, mm-hmm. and again, you know, I'm, my clinic is in the south side of Chicago, which historically has not had access to great health care or affirming care or sexual health care in general. Um, and so we see a lot of these sequelae uh, in populations and particularly in folks who are living with HIV uh, who for one reason or another are not able to potentially or, or for one reason or another have you know um, the progression of syphilis from primary secondary onwards is, is more expedited in these individuals yeah. I think in, in general that has been um, the, 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 um, the case and so right so uh, like I said you know we see folks who lose their hearing or parts of their vision related to STIs these are not just simple infections that we can just ignore and it will just take care of themselves and that we need sort of real world interventions and, and things, ways of thinking about how to prevent them in, in the populations that need it the most. Yeah. I, I ask, like you said, not to fear monger, but just to kind of put this on people's radars as these are not just, you know, diseases that are nuisances or like inconvenient right. or, you know, you can't have sex for two weeks. It's, it's actual public health crises that have real world ramifications and long-term impacts on people who are suffering with them. So um, I, hopefully this uh, podcast is a, a small part to kind of, Raise the discussion around right. it and kind of bring uh, at least um, people more. Um, I, I hope at least this podcast allows people to feel more comfortable discussing SCIs um, in just an effort to get them treated and to kind of bring it into the public consciousness. Yeah. To, and- to kind of further that discussion. Yeah, and SCA is really one right, so the, uh, one part of this, right? Because yeah. sexual health goes beyond just the absence of disease, right? Sexual health is so much more broader than that. Yeah. STIs are one part of, of this all. So I think it's, it's really trying to change our framework of how we think about sexual health because we've been such a, like a disease-centered sort of approach that like, okay, so we just screen you for gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, that's your sexual health, and that's yeah. it, and we walk away. There's so much other stuff that goes into understanding someone's sexual health and how to take care of someone's sexual health beyond than just screening them for STIs. And that's what we're trying to do at least in sort of affirming places like Howard Brown. Yeah, and and not to like, uh, not to like bring this into too many other issues, but uh, advocating for your healthcare and, and ownership of your own body, and really um, being in the in the driver's seat of your own health or sexual health or reproductive health uh, is kind of of paramount importance uh, in society today. That's. Uh, won't delve too much into it because that's an episode for another podcast that we yeah. are recording yeah. soon, but um, it's it's uh, definitely worth thinking about. So um, any final words on the uh, uh, STI frontier, things uh, for people to take home with them, the, the moral of the story, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think it, uh, what I try to do every day is just normalize sexual health, normalize talking about it, normalize getting STI screening, and normalize if you're positive, talking to your partners about it, right? So I think all of that is going to be important in helping destigmatize how we think about STIs and and again being able to understand that this is just something like I said like you your nose get a cold your dick gets a cold like you know thinking about it in that way or that type of um, uh, paradigm is is I think important as we sort of sort of try to move forward and try to move the needle back towards sort of reducing this epidemic that's impacting you know a lot of people in this country yeah incredibly well said and, and great words to end with I think uh, next time uh, myself or somebody I know suffers from SDI I'm just like oh your dick has a cold oh, yeah. yeah normal yeah, so, yeah <laughs> I love exactly. that um, Anu thank you so much for your time as yeah, always of course. Uh, we'll you know you're a go-to person now for, for this so we might have to have you back a, a fourth time no no this is excellent thank you so much thank you 
And that has been our episode on STI prophylaxis. If you're interested in anything we talked about on the episode, you can go to www.howardbrown.org for more information. Thanks for listening.